So last week we did Ruth, and then I was going to talk about Esther, but as I, as I was actually looking at the order of things, one of the things that I plan on doing is sort of naturally explaining Israel and its history. And one thing I know is that Esther just sort of is smack dab in the middle of a different era of Israel's history. And so if you jump from Ruth and you jump over to Esther, and you say, I'm going to talk about these next to each other because there's a, a lady is the main character in each book. That seems a little pandering. So instead, we're going to just take, continue to stick with the order that we were going in, right? We talked about Israel going into the land. We talked about the judges, how they've sort of portioned out the land. Everybody knows where they're supposed to go now. And in the book of Judges, they don't do a good job conquering the land whatsoever. They're living among the Canaanites. And by the end of the 400 years, they become Canaanites themselves. That's sort of the end of the book of Judges. And then we talked about Ruth, which takes place during the time of the Judges. A very relevant, uh, you know, it makes sense for us to talk about Ruth. But now, instead of talking about Esther, I actually want to just continue to move the timeline forward in Scripture if we're not going to talk about Esther and we're not going to, then, then what would be the next most relevant passage that would make the most sense for us to talk about? Well, it would be the question of how do we move from judges to having kings in Israel? Where does that come from and why does that happen? And so that takes us to First and Second Samuel. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about First and Second Samuel. We'll see if we can get it done in one day. I don't know. Uh, we'll find out. Um, but you have from the time of Moses to the time of Joshua to the time of Judges, there is no what in Israel? There's no king in Israel. And by the end of the book of Judges, everyone is doing what is right in whose eyes? Their own eyes. That's the way that, the, that Israel is being run now. And the author of Judges wants us to know that loud and clear. And the book of Judges ends with that very resounding you can make no mistake about it. Everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. And that is not a good thing. Uh, it would be a good thing if everybody was biblically informed and if they were, uh, um, if they were uh, gospel-centered people. But that's not the case with Israel. They are certainly not that. But that leaves the question, how does Israel go from 400 years of being ruled by judges who are each raised up by God, they bring deliverance from the surrounding nations, how do they go from being, having judges to having kings? Well, that's what First and Second Samuel does. It tells the story, or at least it tells part of the story, of the first two kings of Israel. And the first two kings of Israel, what are their names? So Saul's the first king. David is the second king. All right, so that's, that's who this story is about. This book is about Samuel and David, or is it? We'll get to that in a second. Um, because obviously there's a big name here that <laughs> he should also be a candidate for the main character of First and Second Samuel. Um, this book straddles the line between the time of the judges. In other words, how do we enter this new phase of Israel's history? How is it that Israel goes from having no kings to now having kings? So this book is a historical narrative. This book is doing what many of the other books before have done, Joshua, Judges. All of these books are historical narratives telling us what happens in the life of Israel to get us to the place where we are today. And so this book is a historical narrative, but it is also something else. It's a theological work tracing God's unfolding purpose in the history of redemption. So just like with the book of Ruth, you read Ruth and on the one hand, it's a story of this woman who found life and who found restoration. It's also a story of a bigger story about who? 
God. And bringing us Jesus, right? Because we've got David who ends up, of course, emerging out of the story, if you can read between the lines. And David, of course, leads us to Jesus. When we see David, Jesus should come to our minds. Because David is the one Jesus is going to come through. He's sort of the, he's sort of the bottleneck uh, that biblical history filters through. So when we're reading these narratives, we really want to keep our eye on David. Because keeping our eye on David is like keeping our eye on Jesus. So here's what happens, though. The people need order. They need rule. But here's the thing I want you to see standing out as we're talking about First and Second Samuel. They want order, but they want their kind of order. They want their kind of, of rule, but they want their kind of rule. They want to be in charge of, of their leaders, basically. And we know that impulse, right? <laughs> no, we can't relate to that in 2020, um, 21. This is, this is where the friction of the book comes from. The friction of the book comes from the fact that these people need rule and the fact that they want their own rule. Um, that is where the conflict in this book actually comes from. It is, the, it is the battle between God's priorities and the people's priorities. And you can probably guess the people of Israel do not have the same priorities that God does. Very different. So that's sort of the, it's a historical narrative, but it is also a book about how is God going to manage these difficult people as he has been doing for 400 years and as he was doing before that when they were in the the desert. Um, When we talk about the structure of the book, something to keep in mind is that uh, 1st and 2nd Samuel was originally one book. If you look at 1st and 2nd Samuel, one thing you see is that it's a very large book. So the way that the, the, way that the uh, manuscripts would be written of these old books, sometimes the books would be broken up into multiple scrolls because getting a piece of vellum long enough to write the entire book of First and Second Samuel on was quite a chore. And so when you'd find, you'd find manuscripts of First and Second Samuel, and they would be split in half because it's hard to write a book that long. That's why First and Second Chronicles is, is uh, split up into two. Um, this happens frequently. First and second kings split up in two. Uh, and that's because it's, there's a natural breaking point, And after, at a certain point, it became sort of obvious to split the books in half. Um, so when you're talking about first Samuel, I like to break these books out into three-part outlines. Because I find that people can't memorize outlines bigger than that. Or at least it's really difficult to. So when you're talking about first Samuel... Um, chapters 1 to 7. Chapters 1 to 7 is Samuel's early years. This is his childhood. Cute little Samuel and his cute little priest outfit. I always bring it up just because it's adorable. Um, uh, chapter 7 to 15 is Samuel with Saul. I'm just going to put Saul, although it's Samuel with Saul. And then chapters... 16 to, make sure I get the chapter number right, 31 is Samuel with David. So you can already see, at least from this outline that I have, I prioritize Samuel. This book is called Samuel for a reason. The book of 1 Samuel is the story of Samuel. It is Samuel's ministry in Israel. It's, it's Samuel managing under God and by God's superintendence. It's Samuel managing, how do we get a king? And what's it like when we get a king? And how is God going to choose a king? And what is God going to give his people? So, so the book of 1 Samuel really is a book about Samuel. Now, if you were going to write a, an outline for 2 Samuel, it would be a little different because, well, Samuel's not around anymore. 
Instead, the book of, of uh, 2 Samuel is about David. And so you have chapters 1 to 8, which are David's early years. Uh, chapters 9 to f- yeah, 15. Sorry, I'm wrong. It's 9 to 20. 9 to 20 is life in David's court. I'm just going to say court life. He's the king now. What's it like being king? Well, being king means managing wars. It means managing economies. It means managing very difficult people. And then chapters 21 to 24 are, we can just think of them as an epilogue uh, to the book. But um, again, this is a simple, very simplistic way of splitting the book up. That's all that is. Just to sort of help wrap your head around it. But that's what it is. First Samuel's about Samuel. Second Samuel's about David. Now, by the way, I'm being simplistic when I say that. Because it goes without saying, this is actually one big book about God. Um, the, the book is, is not really about the figures in the book. God, they are incidental to the story of what God is doing in Israel, how he's putting Israel together, how he's rescuing Israel from themselves, and how he's going to be bringing a redeemer for Israel. So this book is still God doing everything. Um, it's the same way with uh, Esther, where God's name, I think, does not get mentioned except once in, the pas- in one passage by one character. Um, it's similar, uh, except that God shows up way more in First and Second Samuel. Um, I want to talk about the themes of this book, though. The big theme of this book is kingship. It just, it just, it dominates this entire book. Is this idea of kingship? Can't tell you how long I thought the demand of Israel for a king was in itself sinful. I, I just thought for years, like, it, it's wrong to have a king. It's wrong for Israel to have a king. The fact that Israel wants a king is bad. Uh, it's some kind of mark of, of the wickedness of the people. And, but then you actually start reading scripture and uh, leading up to this, to this book. And you find that God does not have a problem with the idea of Israel having a king. So let me just read you a few verses. Genesis seventeen six. God is speaking to Abraham and he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. So his plan is for Abraham to have children and there are going to be kings that come from Abraham. All right. So, you know, there are good kings, there are bad kings, but it does not seem to be a curse that kings will come from him. It seems to be a positive thing that kings are going to come from Abraham. Um, you get to seventeen, sixteen. he says, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. So he's reiterating this again. In case, in case Abraham thought it was just a passing comment, he brings it in and highlights it again. And then in Genesis 35, uh, God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. Kings shall come from your own body. Numbers 24, 7, his king shall be higher than Agag and his kingdom shall be exalted. He's talking about Israel. Uh, Deuteronomy 17, 14. Here, now I want to highlight this because this is really explicitly about Israel now being in the land. What is God's plan for Israel when they go into the land? Deuteronomy is this extended sermon where God is telling them what they should live like and what they should be like in the land. So Deuteronomy 17, it says, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it, 
And then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. So just, he puts qualifications on it, but he says, having a king is not bad. Having a king is not wrong. You may do it. God is giving them permission to have a king. But he says, but he also anticipates the way they're going to ask for it too, which I find fascinating. He says, he says, then they will say, set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. And that key, that is the key phrase right there. God knows the hearts of his people. He knows exactly the kind of leader that they want. And it's not the kind of leader that he wants. Um, so, so understand, um, it says, oh, by the way, it says, you may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So he's got at least some standards, right? You can't have the king of Egypt become your king. You know, it's got to be somebody who's Jewish. So the problem here, the idea of kingship, the problem with kingship is not the king. The problem is the motivation of the people. Why are you doing this? And what kind of a king are you asking for? So you see the spirit in which they ask for a king in 1 Samuel chapter 8. So if you go to 1 Samuel 8, you look at verses 5 and onward. Here's what it says. The elders said to him, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. They're totally right about both things. Samuel's sons, not quality individuals. Oh, 1 Samuel 8, 5. Uh, They're not. They're not good men. And so it says, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. In other words, we're about to be in a bad place again. We're about to be in another bad place as a people. We've seen this pattern before. We've been through 400 years of overturn when it comes to these judges. And we're about to be in trouble again. But they decide to break the cycle of what was going on before. And they say, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Everybody else has one. We want one like they have. And then in verse 6, it says, But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. In other words, don't skip any of the, 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 the sub-clauses of their request. Give them exactly what they said. Give them a king like all the nations. He says, obey their voice in all they said to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Who is supposed to be the king of Israel? That's what he says. They've rejected me from being king of Israel. That's Yahweh talking. So they they are supposed to have a king. This is true. And it's supposed to be God. And instead, they want one like all the nations. Well, God isn't, Yahweh isn't the God of the king of these other nations. He's not the king of the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Moabites, any of these other nations. And so it says, according to all the deeds that they have done to me from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. So he's like, Samuel, do not take this personally. This is in their blood. This is the kind of people that they are. They tend to reject godly leadership. He says, now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So he says, basically, give a speech, make sure that it's detailed, tell them the kind of stuff that their king's going to do to them. Tell them the kind of leadership they're going to get from this guy. 
And so he does. He gives this speech. He sets before them. He says, hey, you guys really want a king? And they're like, yeah. And he's like, you're going to send your kids off to war. And he's going to tax you. He's going to take your money. He's going to build himself a big fancy palace, even though you're going to live in like a shack. He's like, you want that? And they're like, yeah. And he's like, well, you guys are crazy. Okay. All right. Because they think that's the cost of doing business, right? They think that's, that's what you have to do in order to live in this world. You've got to make some compromises. And so Israel does that. Um, yes, Benjamin. In verse 4, it says that, uh, in verse 5, it says, You have gone old, and your sons no longer are walking in your ways. Are they talking about Samuel's sons? Or are they speaking generally of Israel's sons? In other words, that is the reason, the motivation for them to want to uh, reject God because apparently he's not doing a great job of kingship and to get a, a, uh, a king like the rest of the nation. It's a motivation. I mean, I yeah, think I think it's the frailty of Israel, right? They, they see that Israel's frail and, and it's true, right? You look through the period of the judges, every time you look at Israel, they're frail. You, by, all, by all accounts, they should not have survived 400 years. Um, nations have survived less time. Um, if you look at the ancient nations of the Middle East, the ancient Near East, you look at how easily and how quickly these different lands are conquered. Israel should have been one of those nations. But they, so this is where it's interesting that they don't see it, and it's interesting what they do see. They see the frailty of Israel. I keep using that word because Israel is brittle. They're, they're not strong. You don't look at Israel and go, man, look at this people. They're, they're ruled by wise rulers. They're wealthy. Um, all of these other nations are making treaties with them. You know, they're, they're strong. You don't see that. When you look at Israel, you keep going, when is, this, when is the other shoe about to drop? When is the house of cards going to collapse? And Israel feels it when they look at this nation, even with, even with Samuel, right? Samuel does not give them this security that you would think that comes with a leader, right? Because a good leader, what does he do? He provides succession. He makes sure that there's somebody lined up so they don't have a civil war afterward to decide who's going to be the leader and, and stuff like that. And Samuel doesn't provide that for them because what is he doing? He's just listening to the Lord and he's doing what the Lord says. And the Lord doesn't give us the kind of security that the world finds, finds hopeful, right? Um, sometimes we look frail. I think the church to the watching world looks frail. I think they look at us and they just think, look at these people. Any minute now, that house of cards is going to fall. And, and God says, that's what it looks like actually to have Yahweh as your king. Everybody thinks you're going to fail at any moment. Um, is it also an element of trust by the, the elders that even though Samuel was going to die, to trust God to continue some sort of a successive uh, ruler? Yeah, bring someone else. And he'll do it in his way and in the his trust time. Trust is an element. Yeah, what are you thinking, John? The role of the judge, the judges, was not kind of a king light. I mean, they were ruling, but not with all of the pomp and ceremony and authority of a king. Well, and some of them were, and I highlighted this when we talked about it, but some of them were sort of pretending at being little kings, all the while saying, I'm not a king. That's Gideon, right? Okay. <laughs> I'm not a king. I'll just name my son. My father is the king, you know? 
<laughs> like he's, he's kind of like a warlord, kind of like a gangster, but not a king. And there's no succession with the judges. There's no succession. There's not another one lined up. So with the judges, they have to trust God in an extraordinary way, right? Because the judge goes away and then nobody else rises up and then the trouble comes and then our savior gets raised up. So you can't ever see so far out into the future that you can just feel secure. Um, that's kind of what's going on in Israel's life. Um, so Judges really is like an extended argument that Israel needs a king. That's why the book keeps saying there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what's right in his own eyes. It's actually, if you read between the lines, it's saying Israel does need a king. They need a good king, though. Um, they don't just need any king. They don't just need a king like all the nations. They need, they need a good king. And Samuel takes this, takes this a step further. He says, actually, it doesn't just need to be any king. It needs to be God's king. Right? God says in Deuteronomy, you can have someone, but it's got to be the man God chooses. And so uh, Saul shows us what happens when Israel gets their idea of a king. So you've got these two kings that come up. You know, you've got Saul and you've got David. And honestly, they're like night and day. They really are. Um, you know, you've, if, if you ever listened to a sermon series on Saul and David, you know, they're constantly getting contrasted with each other because they're very different figures. What's the deal? Saul is tall, dark, handsome, good looking, seems to be the kind of guy who's charismatic, draws people exactly what you think a king ought to have. Exactly the kind of person that the surrounding nations probably looked at and went, ooh, Israel, look at that guy. Um, David, on the other hand, at least early on, he's the youngest son in the family. Um, his father doesn't even think to bring him in from the field when uh, he's going to meet Samuel to get anointed. He doesn't seem to be the one that's even his father's first choice. His father seems to have other sons that are much more obvious as candidates to be king. Um, so he doesn't even bring David in. You know, he has to be, Samuel has to make him go and get David out of the fields. Um, but Saul is a picture of what happens when you get what you want. And David is a picture of what you get when you get what God wants. There's big differences there. So you get success, you get flourishing, you get blessing, you get rest from your enemies. At least for a while, because David is still mortal. We'll get to David in just a minute. One of the big themes of this book, though, the second big theme of the book, besides kingship, the second figure, uh, the second is this, uh, it's Saul's. Second theme of the book is Saul's rise and fall. Saul's rise and fall because Saul gets chosen. He gets anointed in, by Samuel in chapter 9. Saul defeats the Ammonites in chapter 11, so not long afterward. Um, when you see that at first, you, you immediately go, man, look at this guy. See, see, we picked right. This is the right kind of guy. This is exactly what we want. This guy, he brought us victory. He brought us victory in battle over the Ammonites. A uh, very promising beginning. Everything looks great up front. And then what happens? Well, Saul gets foolish really quickly. Chapter 13, chapter 14, he goes and makes a sacrifice, which isn't permitted. The king is not allowed to make sacrifices, uh, but he does it himself before battle because what? He's just convinced. He's got this superstitious view of God. He thinks, I've just got to make this sacrifice before the battle or we're going to lose and so Saul makes the sacrifice. He doesn't wait for Samuel. Samuel shows up and says, you made the sacrifice? That's my job. Saul, Saul says, I had to do it. If you read the narrative, you know, he basically says, I had no choice. I had to do it. People who say they have no choice, 
they really do think they have no choice. There's always a choice. And Saul has a choice to make, and he decides that he's going to do things by his own wisdom and by his own power. He, he doesn't get direction from God. Instead, he gets direction from his own intuition because, look, all these people trust in him. All these people believe in him. Uh, there are no checks and balances in Israel. Um, he just does what he wants. He does what he pleases. And so what happens? Very next chapter, chapter 15, Saul is rejected by the Lord as king. As quickly as he is anointed in chapter 9, by chapter 15, he's gone. At least he's, he's no longer anointed. Because he is, sticks around for a long time in the narrative. Saul is around for a long time, even though he's been rejected. So everything after chapter 15 is Saul living in the aftermath of his rejection by God and what it looks like to be rejected by God and what it looks like to try by your own power to carry yourself along every step of the way. It is a pathetic narrative um, and it is a guy living on his own steam uh, as going as far as he can possibly go by his own wisdom. That's what we have in the second half of first Samuel. Um, what we need and what we want are often very different things. I think you could probably attest to that. There are things in your life that you wanted, maybe you even got, and you realized you didn't actually need those things. You convinced yourself that you needed them. Um, you have people in your life that misuse the word need. I need this. I need that. You need to do this. You need to do that. And all the while, they really should be saying, you want to do this, and you want me to do that. Um, but needs and wants are very different things. God knows what we need. And the things we need are actually, it's a much shorter list than we realize. And the things that we want are basically endless because we are giant black holes. And we can just take in as much as we can get, or at least we think we can. So one of the worst things that God can do is give us the desires of our heart. I would say Saul is God giving Israel the desires of their heart. Here, Israel, I'll give you what you want. You want a king like all the nations, I'll do it. And so how do you fix that? How do you fix that intuition? How do you fix that problem? Well, you, you need God to teach you what's right. You need to have right desires. You need to have God change your soul so that you want what he wants and you love what he loves. And if that was Israel's state of mind, they would have asked for something other than a king like all the nations around them. Why didn't God choose David to begin with instead of Saul? Yeah, I think he's showing them exactly what they want. I think he's showing them, okay, I will give you what you want first. Because if I give you, if you ask for a king like all the nations and I give you my king, then you will think that those are the same thing, right? You'll think that my king is just like all the other nations. And you'll think that, you'll think that David is like that too. So that's what I think he's doing. I think he's giving them what they want. But God did uh, have Samuel, directed Samuel to get Saul. Yes. Yep. Samuel chose Saul by his direction. By for sure. Direction. Yep, that's right. So God initially did select <clears throat> Saul. He does. Yeah. And so, so the question is, is this God's man or is this Israel's man? And the answer is, he's giving them their man, though. That's the explanation for why. Because otherwise, the answer is, God is a screw-up and he chooses bad kings. Mm-hmm. And, I, and uh, I don't think that that's a fair... In fact, even from the text, I, I wish I had some verses, but even from the text, I don't think you could make the case that Saul is actually God's king. After chapter 15, he never gets called king again. Um, and actually, I'm trying to remember now whether Saul actually gets, cho- gets called king in the narrative. If someone could find a verse where Saul gets called king, I will be interested because I actually think he doesn't get called king. 
because I started preaching on First Samuel when I was in Mississippi, and that was one of my sermon points. So if, if I'm wrong, then it means I need to call them up and tell them I lied. <laughs> <laughs> also, my thing is, baby was a child. He's not ready to be a king. Oh, uh, Saul's, Saul's child? I mean, baby was a child when Saul became a king. So there's a, quite a bit of t- a time difference between when he's anointed as king and he actually becomes king. Now, we don't know how old he was when he was anointed. We know he's a ruddy young man. But that, could, that age could be, that could be anything. Um, you know, in the Mormon version, of course, Saul, uh, God is allowed to screw up and, and, and make a lot of mistakes and go, oh, rats, I did that wrong. In the Mormon version, that's very interesting. Yeah, and and I I could see a Mormon maybe preaching, hey, this is one of God's mistakes that he learns from. But of course, God is omniscient, so he knows everything, and he's omnipotent. He can choose anyone he wants to be king. But he's remember, all of this is God teaching Israel, right? It's there's a didactic element even to the things that they go through. Yeah, Jeff. Found a verse. You found one. Yeah, fifteen eleven. What's it say? Um, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. I wonder if there are other verses. <laughs> so actually, I remember this. I'm, I'm giving you guys old sermon notes, but I remember, I remember the point that I was making was um, not that he wasn't properly the king. I think he was properly the king. God actually chose him and he actually was ordained as king. Um, I think the, as far as the kind of point that I was trying to make when I was preaching was there is a hesitancy on the part of God to call Saul king. He, he, does, he, he calls David king a lot. Like David gets referred to as his king. He gets referred to as his king. Um, Saul is the people's king. I think that's in the mind of God. I think that that's maybe a good way to put it. That Saul is the people's king and, and uh, David is God's king. Um, yeah. I see in chapter 10 that Samuel says that has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance. Then chapter 16 he tells Jesse, the Lord has told me that I'm going to anoint one of your sons as king. So there is a kind of, like you're saying, hesitancy. Yeah, he uses other words. Like he uses, um, what, what is it that we use? Uh, there's a word for it when we, um, a euphemism. We use euphemism sometimes for things when we're not comfortable saying the word. And over and over again, where you expect him to call Saul king, he gets called like leader. Um, terms like that, just where you would expect him to be called king. So, you know, I won't make too much of it, but I will just say, I think it's interesting that the attitude that God seems to have towards Saul, where he's like, yeah, he's your king, but don't don't take this as an endorsement, basically. <laughs> um, yeah, make of that what you will, though. The second thing, though, the third theme of this book, though, is David's rise. Uh, David's rise. Oh boy, let's see. Where are we at? In oh, I'm only halfway done. Well, I didn't want to do this, uh, but we'll just. I'll just. Yeah, we'll we'll keep going, and then I'll just pick up where we leave off. How's that sound? Um, David's rise. So God rejects Saul as king in chapter 15. David is anointed in chapter 16. So there is not a wide gap of time between when Saul is rejected and when David is anointed. Who's David? Youngest son of Jesse. Uh, Great, great grandson of Ruth and Obed. 
or no, sorry, of Ruth and Boaz. Um, he's unexpected. He's unassuming. Um, he's anointed. He doesn't serve as king for many years. There's a, there's a large gap of time between when he gets anointed and when he actually serves. In chapter 16, when he's anointed, it says this. It says, the spirit of the Lord comes upon David in verse 13. And then the spirit of the Lord leaves Saul in verse 14. There's a switch. There's a changing, changing of the guards. I don't know if I like that word or not, but we'll use it. There's a changing of the guard now in the narrative. And the spirit of God is upon David and he has left Saul. He's rejected Saul. So uh, when we're talking about David's rise, it's really, really hard not to talk about this episode of David and Goliath. Um, so we've got a few minutes. Uh, we'll, I think we can touch on David and Goliath. I'm sure no one in here has ever heard the story of David and Goliath in their entire life. Uh, this is all going to be brand new material to you uh, unless you've been to Sunday school before. So in chapter 17, David's, David's been anointed in chapter 16. Chapter 17, he's not the king yet. Saul is still serving as the king, functionally speaking. Saul is still the king. He goes to the battlefield on an errand for his father. He sees that the men of Israel are, are cowering. They're terrified of this Philistine giant who is fighting uh, for the Philistines. And so, of course, we know the narrative. David steps out. He fights Goliath, defeats him with a little stone just flung from a sling. Right. And he removes Goliath's head with his own sword. That's the gory ending that uh, I don't remember how many. How, I don't remember any flannel boards with the beheading of Goliath on them. But if there was one thing I wanted as a child, it's a flannel board with Goliath's head being removed. So flannel board people, get in the game. Get on with it. Um, that's all I wanted when I was a kid. Now, what is the, the lesson of, of David's episode with Goliath? If there was going to be a lesson in David's, in David's life, you know, there's, you know, the answer is not... The answer is, is not that the theme of this, of this story is dare to be a David. Slay the giants in your own life. You know, how many sermon series out there have, have been devoted to this idea of you've got to be a David. You've got to be a David. You've got to step out. You've got to be like David. Um, you've got giants in your own life. You know, you've got bills to pay. Um, there's, there's an election coming up. You know, whatever it is, we tend to just kind of think of all these insurmountable problems in our lives and we kind of do a David off of them and say, well, those problems are, Dave, are Goliath and I'm like little David. Um, that's actually not the point of this narrative. The point of this narrative is not to, to motivate you and me to, to, to do dangerous things or do difficult things in life. The point of the narrative is God is able to defeat his enemies. God is able to defeat his enemies even using a little kid with a rock. Uh, and he could have even used less than that if he'd wanted to. If, you, if, he, if everybody could have seen him do it, then he could have blown on Goliath's head and he could have fallen over and died from an aneurysm, right? There's any way that God could have chosen to do it. Um, so the, the point is not you could step out and do the same thing. The point of it is God can do anything and he will do anything to rescue his people. Uh, the battle belongs to the Lord. Um, Saul is a complete contrast what does Saul do he trusts in himself and you see his self-reliance and you see his self-trust just blanketing the narrative right Saul and his people are hiding out in the tents they're not going to go out and fight Goliath when when David steps up and says he's going to do it what does Saul do 
in his self-reliance and in his worldview, Saul thinks, well, you've got to be able to beat the giant. And so I'm going to outfit you in the best possible armor. Of course, David can't move around in the armor. It's comical. It's cute. Again, he's probably too small to wear this stuff. It doesn't work. He can't move around. Um, But all the while, it's the contrast between self-reliance and God-reliance. And David lives by God-reliance. He's got a God-centered worldview. He thinks this is about God. He thinks this is about his honor. The thing that bothers him about Goliath's mockery is that that Goliath's making fun of the God who made heaven and earth, the God of Israel. He cares about God. This is all about God. Who's it about for Saul? It's about himself. It's about his rule. It's about how he's supposed to secure Israel. You know, he's got his eyes on the ground and David has his eyes on the Lord. Um, So they're just two very different contrasts, two very different worldviews. That's what makes David and Saul so fascinating as just character studies, Mm -hmm. because they just see the world so differently. Like they're both Israelites. They both have a formal belief in God. And one of them believes in God and one of them seemingly doesn't actually believe in God. Um, Just a huge contrast between these two men. Um, Also, something I like to bring out in the narrative is that God destroys his enemies using their own weapons. I love that it's Goliath's sword that cuts off Goliath. You know, this huge hulking piece of metal that every time he went out into battle, people were like, how on earth does he even swing that thing? Um, If he swung that thing at me, I would just get cleaved in half. You know, they're scared of, of this guy. And David somehow, one way or another, lifts this thing and just beheads him with his own weapon. Um, it is just like God to use the devil's own weapons to destroy him. That's what the cross is, right? Mm-hmm. The cross is Satan taking up his sword, going towards Jesus and finishing him off seemingly, and then instead being destroyed by it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just something about that that is, it's not just poetic, um, but there's just something that's really, it's just like God to do that. It is just like God to do that. Yeah, Jim. I don't, you know, I'm willing to just drop all conversation and just hang on to the nuggets of God's working miraculously through history to do exactly what it wants to be done. Yeah. Which is one of the things I hope to distill out of this afternoon from this. But do you recall a period of time when David was on the run mm-hmm. and dropped into the house of the Lord in one of the towns, I forgot. So I the showbread? Yeah. Yeah. And asked the high priest if he had a sword. And he said, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sort of and uh, I get a little lesson from this, many of the things in life that we're familiar with, <coughs> the sword of the word, which is really the powerful work of God in our personal lives and everywhere in the world. Thank you for your ministry to us. And he grabs that sword and hits the road with it and Saul's after his life. There's no mention of whether he used it again that I know of. Yeah. Uh, but um, he knew he knew what God had done for him, he never forgot. And he hung on to some of the truths, I imagine, of God's ability to keep him. That must have been a horrible time in his life for those years in the wilderness. Uh, the whole army and power of Saul was following him and chasing him throughout his experience. I don't know how long that lasted, but quite a while, it sounds like. Well, you have a few poetic moments in David's life, and the fact that when he, in, in his most insecure time, He's carrying around this reminder of God's strength and power and uh, his arm. You know, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, Celeste. I just think it's interesting that when he did cut off Saul's head, he 
Goliath said he didn't take it back to Saul. He took it to Jerusalem. Yeah, that's interesting. Doing it for Saul, he was doing it for God. Yeah. Yeah, and Jerusalem was not the seat of of power in Israel at all. It was just a village at that point. Yeah, Benjamin. Isn't another major theme there trust? I mean, trust in God because David had to completely trust in God to accomplish this feat that seemingly was almost impossible to accomplish based on. David and his experience and his weaponry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I should be really careful. It is easy to make fun of, of the sermon that says you're David and all your problems in life are Goliaths. But there actually is a piece of truth there, which is God is trustworthy yes. and we should live that way. Yeah. And David lives like God is trustworthy. So he's actually modeling faith. That's what we actually want in scripture is we, we want those models of faith. And that's what David, David is. David is a model of somebody who actually trusts in God and doesn't just talk about trusting God. Which is an application for us when mm-hmm. we are faced with fears. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Don't take my mockery as absolute rejection. I, I just like to make fun of, of, of just people. I'm a sinner, so. <laughs> We're gonna, when we come back, when we come back uh, next week, we'll talk about David's relationship with Jonathan. Um, I don't want to skip it. I, I want to talk about friendship, and I also want to talk uh, about the way that David and Jonathan get treated today, which is just an abomination, and it makes me angry. So I want to talk about something that makes me mad next week. Uh, actually, something really sweet. If you, if you are a modern person, you probably value friendship less than your parents did, and you probably value it less than your grandparents did. And, and I think there's something happening there that is worth addressing. So, yeah, let's do that next week with David and Jonathan. I won't, I won't rush us off out of First and Second Samuel out of some arbitrary rule that says we have to do one book every week. So let me pray for us, and then uh, we can go. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We especially thank you for what you have done for us in Christ Jesus, Lord, that which we could not do for ourselves. I pray that we would walk this week in the victory that's won by Jesus, that we would not set our eyes on ourselves and our own strength and our own ability. Instead, oh God, help us to set our eyes on Christ alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.